Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all you have done. We thank you for the display of your splendor and majesty in all of the world that we see around us. And as we comprehend something more of how awesome and wonderful you are, we become profoundly aware of how insignificant and undeserving we are. Yet we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly to bring us to God. We thank you that you've given us your word that we might be equipped, matured, to love you and serve you with our whole hearts, to give us everything that we need for life and godliness and become more and more like your son. So we pray that as we spend time looking at your word this morning, you might be doing that work in us by your spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would keep me faithful to your intention in these, this Bible passage we're looking at this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever avoided something or been scared of something only to find out that you just didn't really understand the thing in the first place? I remember when Kenzie was younger, when it came to elevators, you know how there's like a little tiny gap between where you enter the, the elevator and the actual elevator itself? And she's like, I can't step over it. The gap is usually at best, something like that. Nobody's going to fall down it. But she was never getting into an elevator unless we picked her up and brought her over it. Now imagine if she brought that into her adulthood. I can't cross that by myself. And she decides she wants to go down to Sky Point and surface paradise up to the observation deck, 77 floors, and she thinks, just going to have to take the stairs, aren't I? It's going to be pretty tough. But when you realise that, man, I could do that in 40 seconds, not even get the sliders bit puffed. This is what it's made for. Actually, the gap's good. If the gap wasn't there, there'd be this big metal scraping sound all the way up. Even a partial knowledge about something will still leave you confused and can leave you fearful and come to wrong judgments about something. Now, if you're a Christian and you've come to know rightly who Jesus is, when we read through accounts like we've read through this morning, we're not particularly surprised with the things that Jesus does because they're consistent with who we know him to be. But as we read the Gospels, despite what Jesus has disclosed about who he is, despite what John the Baptist has disclosed about who Jesus is, the disciples are still figuring a lot of this out. There are times that they seem to expect him to do things that are well beyond any human ability. But there are also other times when Jesus does things that are well beyond any human ability and they think, I can't believe he just did that. as they've come to fully understand who he is, and as we fully come to understand who he is, we are filled with awe, hope, trust, confidence in who he is and that everything that he does. In the two events that we're looking at today, we'll see two things. The first is we'll see that Jesus rescues people from an inevitable destruction that no human could rescue them from. And we'll also see how fear 
can lead to faith. So as we look through this passage, we'll look at who is this man, the question of Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41, destroying the work of the devil, verses 5, 1 to 20, and then looking at fear to faith. Firstly, who is this man? It's a very familiar event in the life of Jesus. The calming of the seas, the calming of the storm. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And even though Mark usually tends to be the most brief and concise in the way he records events, it's actually the most detailed of the three when it comes to this event. Jesus had had a long day of ministry Crowds surrounding him, we've seen that almost everywhere he goes. Yet it's his suggestion to get on the boat and go to the other side to get away from the crowds. Even though we commonly have this perception that crowds are a sign of success and you should go where the crowds are going, even in these early chapters of Mark, we've seen so many times where Jesus actually withdraws from the crowd particularly if their goal is just to see some sort of a show or the, or the miraculous. And he says, I'm not here for that. I came here to preach. And so they get up on this boat onto the Sea of Galilee, an inland sea, roughly 20 k's by 12 kilometres. It was notorious to be quite a dangerous body of water. There was a lot of sort of hilly mountains around the edges and the wind would come in such a way that it would really stir up the waters. But at the time in which Jesus suggests they get in the boat, at the time, everything's calm, everything's normal. Now, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And we see part of that humanity coming out that Jesus, after a day of ministry, and I experience the same, he's tired. When you read the account in Luke chapter 8, particularly in verse 23, you get the impression that almost as soon as he gets in the boat, Jesus is out like a light. He's asleep. But along the journey, that's when the storm comes. The wind picks up. The waves pick up. The waves start crashing into the boat. The boat starts filling with water. Now, if you remember, when Jesus called the disciples, a significant number of them were professional fishermen. This was, this was familiar territory. They would have been very used to sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Yet such was the magnitude of this storm that even seasoned fishermen are scared for their life. And where's Jesus in the middle of this? Experienced fishermen being scared for their whole life? He's having a little kip. He's fast asleep. Now I know it's the desire of God for every single one of us that we become more and more like Christ and probably in no part of our life do we become completely Christ-like. But when it comes to sleep, I reckon I'm almost there. I can sleep through all sorts of things. My wife's very jealous of that. But the response of the disciples to this storm, we often think it was a, it was a faithless response. But there's a mixture of both fear and faith in their response. As Jesus was asleep on the stern, asleep on the cushion, they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care 
that we are perishing. Well, there's fear that they, they think they're going to die. There's a genuine fear. They think, this is it. We are going to die. And Mark is the only one who records them asking the question this way, where they actually say of Jesus, not just, can you help us? They say, don't you care that we're going to die? As a reader, that kind of shocks us a little bit, that someone would speak to Jesus saying, don't you care about the situation that we're in? Unfortunately, though, if we're honest, probably many of us are being guilty during some hard times in life. We bring things constantly before God in prayer and we kind of, maybe even, whether we said it or not, have thought that way ourselves. You might even find it a comfort to realise as we read through Mark that Jesus never actually rebukes them for that. The way Matthew records it in Matthew chapter 8, he has the disciples saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. The very fact they go to Jesus in the middle of this situation expresses trust that they recognise he is able to save them. They've certainly concluded that there's nothing that they can do Unless he does something, they will perish. I don't think they've got a clear idea of what he's able to do or what specifically he might do in this situation, but they do trust that he is able to save them. In fact, the means by which Jesus rescued them, we'll see later on, actually created more fear amongst them. Jesus awoke, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And that massive storm, the wind ceased and there was great calm. Just as all the entirety of the universe was brought into into existence from chaos to order and peace by the spoken word of God, Now also Jesus, the creator, instantly brings this chaos of this storm to instant order and peace simply by speaking. If you were on that boat, you would have been absolutely awestruck. Not just that he was able to affect both of those things, but that instantly the wind stopped and instantly the sea was calm. Now, it wasn't too many months back that our kids found great joy of getting in the bath, lying on their tummies and realised if you push and slide along the bathtub, you can make waves. You get two, they're small enough, they can fit side by side and they push, and you can make a whole lot of waves all over the bathroom floor. They got in quite a bit of trouble for repeatedly doing that. To the extent that we'd hear the sounds of the splashing and we'd get down there and we'd be like, stop. The kids had stopped. The water keeps going for a while. And the same way that the people who saw what Jesus did, they would have seen not only the wind stopped, but to see that the sea had immediately stopped. They were like, who is this? Who can do things like this? The experienced fishermen knew there was absolutely nothing they could do. They were 
heading for a certain death. But through the work of Jesus, they went from certain destruction to instant rescue. They're on the boat, waves crashing over, they were convinced they were going to die. And just at the spoken word of Jesus, there was instant calm. But even after peace is perfectly restored, the disciples weren't at peace. In fact, Jesus says to them, Why are, not why, not why were you afraid, why are you presently so afraid? He's taken away the storm, he's taken away the the unsettled waters, and, and even now he says, Right now, why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? The answer to some of this question of why are they still so afraid comes in the following verse. And the disciples say, who is this guy that even the the winds and the waves obey him? Like so far, they've been quite okay with Jesus' demonstration of his authority over sickness or over demons in individuals to restore individual people. But to control the elements of nature, the wind and the waves, and for it to be instantaneous, they're like, who is this? So Jesus is right to say, do you still have no faith? Not because they didn't have faith, they had faith. They had faith that he could do something. But you still have no faith in identifying who I truly am. In recognising who I am. Because if you did, you wouldn't be so surprised that I acted in this way. I created this stuff that I've just intervened within. There would have been no fear of faith was fully realised. And I love the way chapter 4 ends. It ends just with that question. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey them? There's no follow-up of an answer to that question or, or how they came to understand the answer to that question. It kind of just leaves it out there. And as you're reading it, you're kind of forced to ask that same question. Who is? Who is this Jesus? challenging for all of us as we read it. If Jesus truly is the way in which he's recorded in the Bible, you can't just say, oh, he was a good teacher. He was a significant historical figure. He was a good bloke. I had some good teachers in high school. Some of them liked me, the majority of them didn't, but that wasn't their fault, that was mine. But I can tell you, none of them rebuked the wind and the waves and had them stop. If Jesus did everything as is recorded in the scriptures, which incidentally were written during the time in which eyewitnesses were alive, the things were being circulated, people weren't saying, no, I was there, that's not the way it, it panned out. They could validate these things. Then we need to think about, who is this Jesus? And if you haven't thought about it this morning, I think it's a question we need to think about. Secondly, in chapter 5, we have destroying the work of the devil. Now, I hope Jesus had a good sleep on the boat because it wasn't, didn't exactly come off to an idyllic holiday destination and experience on the other side. Instead, he finds himself confronted 
by a demon-possessed man, or, or two men, as according to both Matthew and Luke's account, but Mark focuses on one in particular. So terrifying, according to Matthew's account, that no one would even go anywhere near the area where he lived. He had this supernatural strength. They tried to constrain him and bind him up, but he just broke his way out. He'd be screaming night and day, 24-7, naked, cutting himself with rocks, living amongst the tombs. I can imagine there'd be a fair bit of panic in that town. If that was your town, you might be starting to look at real estate and other areas, I'd imagine, at this point in time. And right before the eyes of the disciples, they see this man running towards Jesus. This one who nobody else had been able to bind, people were living in total fear of. He sees Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This uncontrollable, unrestrainable, demon-possessed man, when he comes to Jesus, cannot even stand. He can do nothing but fall before him as an inferior does toward a superior. He recognises who Jesus is, the son of the most high God. And he even recognises this Jesus is the one who will bring about his ultimate destruction in the end. The way in which Matthew records it in chapter 8, verse 29, he says, They cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to, to torment us before the time? The demon knows that there is an appointed time in which Jesus will destroy him, Satan, and all demons. And he's just praying, I hope this isn't the time. This demon also knows that he has absolutely nothing within his power, as great as it might have been, against the works of man to prevent the distraction that Jesus would bring upon him. His only hope was, I hope today's not that day. I hope we can delay what he knows to be the inevitable. This poor guy didn't just have one demon, he had many. We don't know exactly how many, but we see there was at least 2,000 pigs that got gone down in the river, so you can imagine between the two guys, there's a lot. Presumably one of them being serving as a spokesman. Now Jesus hasn't got any fancy ritual you must do this and say it this way and do that. He just simply says, come out. And the majority of what you see in the Gospels, that's exactly all, all he has to do. And Jesus has the victory because he is the one with all authority. Now some look at this passage and say, this is a justification. You need, you need to, Jesus had to ask his name. You need to know the name in order to cast them out. But as you read through the rest of the Gospel accounts and actually think, Well, actually, that's not what we commonly see. 
In fact, I would suggest to you that the reason why Jesus asks him for his name isn't because Jesus needs to know for himself in order to cast it out. But I think it's for the benefit of the man who has been possessed and for those who are on looking so they know exactly what it is that Jesus has had power to set free this man from. But why send them into the pigs? After all, this, this was the idea of the demon itself. Is Surely Jesus isn't, isn't giving in to the commands of demons. And what about the poor farmers that own these animals? I think this again, again, this is think. He's, he wants to teach those who can see what's going on. They want to have a visible example of what you have seen in this guy. All this destructive behaviour, that's not him. And also to see the magnitude of what has been in him that could so also reap distraction on 2,000 pigs. Understandably, the herdsmen, they're a bit scared. Not only because of the power of Jesus they've just seen on display, but herdsmen would be people who looked after other people's animals. So they've got to go back and tell the people who own those animals that they're pigs, they're drowned. So they go back and they tell everyone what's going on. And everyone, you can imagine hearing that type of a story, everybody comes out to see what has happened. And they see Jesus. They see this man who they once lived in total fear of. And his insane mind, he's stressed, and he's sitting at Jesus' feet. But what's their focus? Is their focus, oh, thanks, Jesus, look at this wonderful thing you've just done. No, their response is, Jesus, you need to get out of here. Probably just a, both a fear of the power that they've seen on display, but also the inconvenience of the, the animals in which they had lost. They wanted to send him away. Have they forgotten something? They had a guy who was screaming 24-7 who they couldn't control, couldn't restrain. They've been set free from him. And they can see that same guy in his same mind sitting at the feet of Jesus. And it says, and they were afraid. They were afraid of that. They were afraid of the fear and power and authority of Jesus. They didn't know what else he might do. They wanted to send him away. Send him away, the one who had rescued them from this guy. This guy which they had absolutely no power to control whatsoever. And so Jesus gets into the boat. The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said, Go home and tell your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away, began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You could read that and think, 
Why didn't Jesus take him with him? He, he's got a fantastic testimony. He's a great guy to go take, take on a speaking tour. Look what Jesus has done in his life. He was keen. He was eager. Had a great story. But Jesus, knowing a lot better than he did, now what's best for you is you go home to the people who know you, who have seen you, and you tell them what the Lord has done for you. You speak of his great mercy. And that was an act of great mercy in and of itself. Not only what he had done to rescue this man, but even to a people who had said of the good works of Jesus, you get out. Jesus doesn't abandon them. Jesus sends them a missionary to declare the mercy of God. And even though Jesus says, go home, tell your friends... What we read is that he proclaimed to the Decapolis, like 10 cities over to the side of the Sea of Galilee. He's like, man, I, sure, I'll tell my friends that, man, what Jesus has done in me, I've got, I've got to tell a lot of people about that. That's, people need to hear this. When you have been set free by Jesus, you want to tell everyone. And everyone who heard marveled. So we've got two accounts both where Jesus rescues a people who other than his intervention were destined for certain destruction. No amount of human effort could have saved either from the impending destruction. The only hope for the disciples on the boat, the only hope for this man amongst the Gerasenes was a rescue that Jesus and Jesus alone could bring about. We've got lots of people in the passage described as being fearing of Jesus. You've got the disciples who feared Jesus, but there's still something in them that that fear draws them to want to know him more. Then you've got the people from the Gerasene community who feared Jesus and their response of seeing his power and authority, they want to reject him, they want to send him away. Seemed they could only see what Jesus' power and authority had lost them, the inconvenience, what it had cost them with the peace, not what he had done to set free this man. Simply recognizing Jesus' power and authority isn't enough. We read in the book of James that even demons believe there is one God and shudder. Any honest investigation into Jesus, you cannot deny his power and authority. In fact, Paul, as he writes to the church in Romans in chapter 1, verse 20, says, everybody knows there is a God of eternal power because God has made it plainly known to them. Because he is the ultimate king of all because he made everything, he also has the ultimate power to save or to judge those who have dishonoured or spurned him as their king. In this life, we spend a lot of time worrying about little things, a job, finances, health, relationships. Jesus in Matthew 10 says, don't fear those who can kill, kill the body. That's a pretty big thing. 
but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Every single one of us born into this world was headed for a guaranteed destruction because of our inherited rejection of our king, inherited from Adam and Eve. That we've not honoured the one who's given us life and breath and everything. He said, no, thanks for all your stuff. I'll just do it my own way. And while we're headed for destruction, we were totally powerless to do anything about it. And while we were totally powerless to do anything about it, Jesus entered into this world to a people who had turned their back on him. And he acted to rescue and to save. Saving us by his, by his death. Taking our penalty for our rejection of him. Being raised in glorious power. Everything that needs to be done to rescue us, he has done. When the crowds gathered at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 had heard of these wonderful deeds, they asked the question, they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? How do we respond to this? We need to repent. We need to turn from sin and turn to Jesus the King. Some people don't like that word, Repent. They think, oh, it sounds a little bit harsh. It means to turn from your sin that is heading you on that natural trajectory for destruction and turn to the Saviour, the one who wants to bring you into his family, to bless you, to give you eternal life. Yet in this world there's people who say, I just don't want to hear that word. But you know what? I guarantee every single person in hell would just wish they would hear the call to repentance one more time. Now, today is the day of salvation. We can call upon his name while we are alive. And just like as it was on the Sea of Galilee for the disciples, we can go straight from an enemy of God as we turn in repentance and faith, they're having peace with God, being reconciled to God, being part of his family, his children, blessed co-heirs with Christ. That would be my prayer for every single one of person born into this world. We pray that we would be faithful ambassadors declaring the good news of the gospel. Closing prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you intervened in our mess. We were completely powerless to do anything to make us right in your sight. And to be honest, we were completely undeserving of being made right in your sight. We thank you that even a term which we find offensive is actually the very gracious and merciful word that sometimes we need to hear. 
Lord, we thank you that you have shown us great mercy. We pray that we would respond to the greatness of your mercy and that man from the Gerasenes who not only spoke to his family and friends but he's like, this is the good news, I must proclaim it where I go. Thank you that you have done what we cannot do. And as we come around uh, the Lord's table now, we remember what you have done. And it may be a wonderful time of refreshing reminder of what you have done to rescue us when we were headed for um, inevitable destruction. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.